0: I have a couple announcements to do for you guys. Um, number one, uh, next Saturday from 11 uh, a.m. to 2 p.m., uh, Christy is doing a training for volunteers. So if you help out in children's ministry anywhere, it's to help you guys better be cohesive as a, as a team, how to uh, work better in your classrooms and do all that. So she's going to provide lunch. So it's 11 to 2 next week. Hopefully you can make plans to be at that. She said, she said, make sure I tell you in the strongest way possible. Be there. That's me being strong. Because I, It's okay. Second service doesn't get it either. Whatever. Okay. Um, also, we, uh, if you don't know this, you've been here around it for a while. We work with and help out a ministry in Thailand that helps get young ladies out of prostitution. It's called the Tamar Center. Uh, the Tamar Center goes into the bars around the city. They try and talk to a lot of these girls. And when they come out, they give them a place to stay. They teach them some skills so they can do some things so they don't have to sell their bodies to provide for themselves or their children. Um, on the other side, we also work at the group called Bridges to the Nations. And what Bridges to the Nations to the, did is when they were in Thailand, they actually planted a church there because a lot of these girls would come out of prostitution and a lot of the churches didn't want them in their churches because it's very taboo. Oh, you're a prostitute? Don't come into our church because we're perfect. Anyway, I'm not making fun of Anyway, okay, maybe I am. So anyway, what they did is, is they started a church for these girls and, and it's growing and booming. What they also do is go up and they work in the schools in the area out, outside of there so that they that they train them and teach them what's going on so they don't think they have to go into the city and into these bars and start that lifestyle. So trying to educate outside of there too. You know, so it's education, it's uh helping get the girls out, it on the other side of that, it's giving them a place to worship together corporately, so it's doing a lot of good stuff. Um, if you were, uh, next year in 2015, they're planning another trip to go there. And if you have ever thought about that, you've ever been interested in doing something like that on Tuesday night at seven o'clock out in front of food max, the Starbucks that's out there, uh, they're having a a short meeting. And if you have any questions about it, you want to be involved in it. You want just to know how much does it cost? When's it going to be, how long is it going to take me to do, you know, all that stuff. Go, go there and just, just check it out. Ask them all your questions because it's a good thing to be involved in. Uh, now, uh, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but World War I, it actually ended on June twenty eighth, 1919 with the Treaty of Versailles. But everybody actually laid down their arms nine months before that, on November eleventh, 1918. And World War I was called the War to End All Wars. It was called the Great War. And so our country came up with what was called Armistice Day which is, you know, laying down the arms on this day. And so we, we celebrated this. But then in 1954, you know, we started looking at all the other wars that we had now fought because apparently World War I wasn't the war to end all wars <laughs> because we had another one called World War II and, and the Korean War. And World War II actually saw the greatest mobilization of soldiers and sailors and Marines and airmen in our nation's history. Again, the Korean War comes after that. So the 83rd Congress decided what they would do is change Armistice Day to Veterans Day. And so we celebrate that on November 11th. So uh, it's it's a day where you celebrate and honor America's veterans for their patriotism, for their love of the country, their willingness to serve and sacrifice for the common good. And that is Tuesday this week. And so if you know a veteran, I mean, we live, you know, right outside of Vandenberg Air Force Base. So a lot of us do know veterans. And so if you know one, you know, thank them for their service. Uh, you know, if they didn't serve, America may still be here, but I guarantee you it wouldn't look the way that it does. And so we need to thank them. And so as part of Element, if you are a veteran, I would like to say thank you so much for your service. Uh, You are amazing, and we totally appreciate it. All right. All right. Welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, inside those sermon notes, you'll get some readings that go along with what we're talking about, some questions to go a little bit deeper. On the back, there's some announcements. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called YouVersion. You can click on Version in your smartphone, and as it opens up, it'll say Live. You click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS. In your smartphone, you'll get the sermon notes and the verses and all that goes along with the day's message. So you don't have to shut your phone off. You can actually use it. Why don't you guys stand me? The reading of God's word. Uh, this comes right after what we looked at last week. This is Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. So Jesus talks about the two roads, and then this is what he says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us as a people how to recognize not just other people's fruit, but our own. And Father, how we're living and and the things that we say. Because I ask that you would teach us in the end that the doctrines that we say would be understood as as the love letters that you have given to us. And that they would change our lives in ways that you are fully honored and glorified. And we would come down to the central message of the gospel and all that we do, which is Jesus. Amen. Have a seat. Alright, so we're in the Sermon on the Mount. This is week 39. You have a Bible open to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, We're going to kind of hit a bump in the road in the Sermon on the Mount this week and for the next uh, four weeks. I'm going to do something I promised a friend of mine that I would do almost a year ago. The friend of mine is Michelle, the one that's leading music, and she asked me to talk about heretics. And I go, I have no idea where i do that. And as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, I thought... This would be a perfect place to do it. The whole idea of trees and fruit and recognizing heresies and things like that. So it fits in really perfectly. Uh, Some of you are going to really enjoy this because you love history. You love learning all these crazy little things. Some of you not so much, but you'll be okay. Get over it. If it does go really bad, we'll just cut it down by like a week. And we'll just move on from there, but we'll see. we'll see how this goes. Now, when we talk about heretics, I'm not referring to like modern day heretics. I'm referring to people in the early church who they considered to be heretics and how those ideas at times are still prevalent today and how we need to watch out for them, hence trees and fruit. But what is really interesting in the Sermon on the Mount, if you look in your Bible, you're, you're going to have like all these little sections and they're all broken up. That's not how the Sermon on the Mount was preached Spoken, it all goes together. We've been showing you that for the last year now. How the entire sermon on the mountain goes together, and the section right after, you know, Matthew seven, you know, fifteen through twenty-one, actually goes back along with the verses right before it about trees and fruit. In Matthew 7, 22 and 23, Jesus says you watch out for people who claim to be followers of God, but they actually aren't. This is what he says. Matthew 7, 22, he says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Now, when Jesus talks about the day, he's talking about the last day or, or judgment day. And so what we're going to do is put these things together, these verses and the ones before it, over the next four weeks. And what Jesus is saying, this is possible for people who call him Lord, sit, align, sit alongside other people in, in a church. On the last day, you're going to find out that he never knew you. Now, you might, little beads of sweat pop up on your forehead. You're like, oh, my goodness. If you're worried about it, don't worry about it. Okay, because that, that, that's a good sign. Uh, but the passage does, I think, what Jesus is trying to show is that there are, there are three traits that authentic followers of Christ and inauthentic followers of Christ both share that they can share. And I'll show you what those are. Number one is orthodoxy of doctrine orthodoxy of doctrine. We are told these people on the last day they go to Jesus and they call him Lord. Now in Greek, this is the word, this is the word Uh You can say curiosity, like curious. It's not the same thing, but if you say it like that, you're close. You'll, you know, Fight your way out of paper bag that way. But anyway, uh, so, the, the Greek in, in, the Old Testament, the Old Testament Septuagint, they translate God's name Yahweh as this Kyrios. And so for Greek-speaking Jews, anybody who said Kyrios was calling somebody God. These people come to Jesus and they call Him God. They have orthodox doctrine. But as we all know, orthodox doctrine does not a nice person to make sometimes, right? Yeah, oh, maybe not because you're dead this morning. Okay, secondly, what you see is that they are emotionally involved. They don't just say Lord, they say Lord, Lord. You have this doubling of the name. It expresses intensity of emotion. Uh, You see this all throughout the scriptures. In one point, David in the Old Testament is mourning his son Absalom. And in 2 Samuel 18.33, he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. It's intensity of emotion. They don't just say, Lord. They say, Lord, Lord. They aren't people who are just orthodox in doctrine. They're emotionally involved. They weep in the worship services. And on top of that, they're also really involved because they're active in service. Did we not prophesy in your name and your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And Jesus doesn't go all princess bride on them, like liar. I mean, he doesn't do that with them. You know, they 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 taught the word, they they prophesied, they healed people, they did miracles, they led people probably even to know who Jesus was. Maybe people's lives were turned around by listening to things they said. But Jesus says, "I never knew you." He doesn't say, "I don't know about you," because Jesus knows who everybody is. The words "I don't know you" really means I never had a deep relationship with you, I don't have relationship he doesn't say, oh you must have backslid or something like that, he says I never knew you now is there anything wrong with orthodox doctrine or emotional involvement or deep ministry no, we hope all Christians are involved in all those things but what he is saying is that just having those things doesn't necessarily mean you're actually following Jesus, and there's two things that authentic Christians, authentic believers have, but I'm going to save that for the end when we bring together all that we're talking about so you'll go, wow, that was a professional way to do that, because it's awesome Okay, anyway, so when we think about heretics and talk about heretics. We, for some reason, are always think about these people we think are purposely evil. They try and drag real believers away to hell, and that is not the case. Uh, it's kind of funny. In German, the word heretic is very closely related to the word for candle. And so this guy goes into a candle store to, to, and he orders four heretics. And the store clerk says, what do you want them for? And he says, to burn them for advent. I am not putting this service online, I'm telling you. What we think about a lot of heretics is that they were burned at the stake. Well, some were, but actually most weren't. None of the heretics that we're going to look at over the next four weeks were burned or killed in any way for their teachings. The worst, most of them were deposed of their positions of authority. Uh, None of the heretics we're going to talk about would consider themselves unbelievers or people seeking to destroy the faith. On the contrary, most, probably all of them, were sincere people trying to understand the gospel in sense of where they lived and and the lives that they came from and all that kind of stuff. Because it's important to understand the gospel in Our own culture. And it is really largely due to these early heretics that we have the good theology we do today. like Things like the Apostles' Creed or even the New Testament. And so what is a heretic? What is a heretic? A heretic in a nutshell is someone whose teachings the church at large considers erroneous or even dangerous to the faith. And you might say, well, that's dangerous because we call everybody heretics today. But the early church wasn't really like that. I mean, the early church weren't like us. I mean, today we label everything a heretic. Uh, there are churches that don't hold to a literal six-day creation account. And they'll say, well, you're heretics. You don't hold to this. There are those who uh, don't expect a rapture. Oh, they say, well, you're heretics. There are those who disagree whether the millennium comes before or after the return of Jesus or if we're living in it right now and each other are calling each other heretics in the middle of it. The Roman Catholic Church uh, labeled Martin Luther and John Calvin, both heretics. You might think, well, that's horrible. Well, Martin Luther, he named the Anabaptists heretics. What are the Anabaptists? Well, the Anabaptists are this group who said, you know, the church is always baptizing infants. Infants don't make a decision to be able to understand what they're doing being baptized. So we think as adults, when you follow Jesus, you should be baptized again. And that was like Anabaptist. Okay? So it's like, that's heresy. You, you shouldn't do that. John Calvin had a guy named Sebastian Castillo run out of Geneva because he declared the heretical notion that the Song of Solomon was a love poem. That's how we taught it. Ah, and I like John Calvin, okay? I mean, whoa. You know, later Arminians are leaving Calvinist heretics and Calvinists are leaving Arminian heretics. It has become much too easy today to throw around this term heretic. And so we're going to deal with a very limited number of heretics all before 451 AD and those that theologically go to the core of the Christian faith, which is Jesus. And it's really important to remember that throughout the history of the early church, there's tons of disagreements, tons of disagreements. And most of these disagreements never led to anybody calling anybody else a heretic because they realized how big of a word that was. Uh, for instance, in the early church, they disagreed about the role of reason and philosophy in the task of theology. Oh, you can't have reason and philosophy and, the, and theology you can't do it. Today, I'll tell you, some of the best theologians are also philosophers. Um, And they disagreed for the date of the celebration of Easter. This was a big one. I mean, when you're going to celebrate Jesus rising from the dead, that was a big one. And they had a bunch of disagreements, but nobody labeled anybody else a heretic in the middle of it. The authority of bishops in the church. Nobody labeled anybody heretic about that. Uh, Another really big one is in the 4th century, a guy named Jerome He translates uh, the Old Testament scriptures into what's known as the Latin Vulgate. Okay, the Latin Vulgate. This is a very important translation of the time so people can read the Bible actually in Latin. Well, he gets to Jonah chapter 4. Okay, and he translates this word where Jonah is sitting outside the city of Nineveh, that, hoping that God's going to destroy the city. And God grows up this plant over Jonah's head to give him some shade. And it, it's all for an object lesson because God later destroys the plant, too. And Jonah's like, why, God, you're so mean to me. It's a kind of funny story. But anyway, so God grows up this plant. And, and for the longest time, it had always been translated as the word ivy. When Jerome translated it, he translated it as the word gourd. Holy cow, the crap storm that came out of that. And the earth. Should I say that? No? <laughs> The the storm that came out of that in the early church was insane. The Ibyus and the Gordus. I mean, it is like we're going to kill each other. The Ibyus and the, it's just just crazy stuff about this. And the truth is, today we don't even really know what that Hebrew word means. Most scholars they think it's like some you know bean plant of some sort. We don't we don't really know. But people were scandalized. Like the people like the Ivius were like, well, Jerome likes to drink too much, and he wants it to be a gourd so he can have a gourd in his church service to keep his liquor in it. I know it's not a big deal to you. Welcome to the church. This is what happens, people. They're, we're just we're crazy people. But no none of them called the other heretics because none of it went to the heart of the gospel. Now, the common image, like I said, of a heretic is a person who's willfully promoting error. Uh, most heretics, again, they were convinced believers seeking to clarify the full meaning of the faith they believed in. They asked questions that really did need to be asked. And the, uh, their answers were often rejected by fellow Christians, but the very act of asking those questions, of trying to put out some of the answers, helped the church at large to clarify its faith. Some of these guys were, were popular pastors and teachers. And and they were widely admired. They, They wrote books like a lot of crazies today do as well. Now, for the most part, uh, you know you go to a church today, and it's like you've, you're, it's organized. You've got like leaders and you know different kind of rules, established things like that. But the early church wasn't like that, and so you had the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, going out. You know that came from Jesus, went by the apostles, but Christianity is just spreading like wildfire. And so there's people hearing it and teaching it, and so the church kept trying to send people farther and farther out so they could hear and understand what the gospel really was in context. Because the gospel, when it goes into cultural containers, it becomes the church, and churches are diverse different, but the heart of the gospel should always be Jesus Christ in the heart of the gospel. And so the church is going out and trying to clarify the faith. Like you have like in Galatians and the book of Romans and elsewhere, Paul refutes these people called the Judaizers. The Judaizers. They had all the law of Judaism, and then they threw Christ on top, so you had law and grace trying to somehow intermingle together. And the very fact that Paul had to go out and refute some of these people means that there was a following coming along behind them. And so Paul had to go out and say, no, no, it's not law And grace its just simply grace. The Judaizers come out of a verse in Galatians 2.14 where Paul says they force people to follow Jewish customs. The word Jewish customs is where we get the word Judaizers from. And so Paul goes out and he's trying to set this straight. You will see correspondence throughout a lot of New Testament letters trying to deal with some of these different thoughts that are out there. I mean, almost the whole book of 1 Corinthians is like this. I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, you had people who believe that there's life after death, but not the resurrection of the dead. So Paul's trying to deal with that. He's trying to deal with all these things throughout the book. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 4, uh, Paul says, you know, some people like, well, I follow Paul, and other people say, saying, no, I follow Apollos. And Paul says, are you not being merely human by trying to follow people? You're supposed to follow Jesus. And so he keeps coming back to the message of Jesus. I mean, some Christians were like, uh, you know, when when you become a follower of Jesus, you've got to stay celibate your entire life. Even if you're married, yes, even if you're married. Well, how do we keep this thing going? We're all going to die out, right? Can't make babies. They had strict dietary observations. And and so as you start going to the scriptures, you see a lot of this stuff. In Acts 18 and 19, uh, Paul runs into some disciples who only heard of the baptism of John the Baptist. And so what he does is he explains to them who Jesus was in the gospel. And they believe, and they're baptized, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. It's really interesting. In Acts 18, you also see this guy named Apollos. You know, one of the people in the Corinthian church is like, oh, we're going to follow them. We're going to follow Apollos. Now, Apollos was trying to teach about Jesus, but he didn't really understand except for John's teaching and John's baptism. And so these disciples of Paul, Priscilla and Aquila, teach him, Acts 18 26, the way of God more accurately. The way of God more accurately. And this is what the church constantly tried to do by sending out the apostles and, and the teachings of the people that the apostles discipled is teach the way of God more accurately, understanding the gospel as it truly is. Theological debate was paramount in deciding who was a heretic and who was not, but so was worship. Because the early church believed that worship isn't just music. Worship is everything you did. And so the way that you lived your life with your hands and your feet in the midst of the world, how you worship by everything you did would also show what you believed, what was orthodox and what was was not. And the reason for me stressing all this stuff and this vast diversity within early Christianity is not to cast doubt view on the final outcome of the debates of the time, but to help us attain the idea of how crucial and lively these debates were. I mean, it wasn't even really a matter of the church officially casting people out they found erroneous. It's this whole idea of coming together and it was helping the church uh, understand the integrity of the message of the gospel. What ended up becoming what we call today closed-handed and open-handed issues. I mean, we have closed-handed issues, the things that we will die for, we will go to the mat for, you know, the deity of Jesus Christ, the nature of God, sin, salvation, we will go to the mat for those. But on this side, you have everything else. It's like some churches say, uh, you know, no, you can't dance. Dancing's evil. Other churches hold dances. You know, some churches say alcohol is all evil. Other churches have wine on their communion tables. You know, some churches say, you know, movies are awful. You should never go. And other churches say, hey, we're going to go see, we're going to go see The Hobbit this year. Yay, let's go. You know, it's, you know, there, there's different things. These are all open-handed issues. And so the church is clarifying what's close-handed and what's open-handed issues. A very significant difference between what eventually became known as the church and the heretics is that the church itself was willing to have the debate. They're willing to talk about these things. They're willing to walk through these hard issues of what was close-handed and open-handed issues. But the heretics, everything was a close-handed issue. It was everything we believe in the exact minutiae that we believe it is like this and that's it. It's kind of like today. The people who yell the most for tolerance are really the most intolerant of anybody else's view but their own. Like back in the 1960s, you had this whole group of people, we want to have the debate, you've got to debate with us. And so they said, okay, let's have the debate. And now those same people are in charge of universities and their professors and they refuse now to have the debate. The church itself was open to the debate. But the heretics always insisted it has to be our way or no other way. We have the sole authority. I mean, it's kind of interesting that those who became known as the church were willing to accommodate a lot of open-handed issues. They just would not diminish who the person of Jesus Christ was. And this is one of the reasons why the church started to call itself Catholic. Not Roman Catholic, but Catholic. Catholic men according to the whole or according to the all or universal. We are the universal church. Like today, Uh, in the broadest sense, under that dome of Christianity, you have Protestants, you have Catholics, you have Eastern Orthodox. It's it's a very large dome because we uh, believe in the essentials of the Christian faith, of who Jesus is, and all the other stuff out here, traditions and things, they're all out here. They're open-handed issues. See, it goes against the stereotype that we normally think about heretics. Oh, heretics are very open-minded. No, they weren't. The church was able to have the debate. The heretics did not want to have it. Now, just an example that wasn't like an introduction just to get you here. I'm going to give you a short little thing about a certain set of heretics. Uh, These guys were called the Ebionites. The Ebionites. The name is not based on the founders, not some guy named Ebion, you know, poor guy, his mom hated him, you know, but so it's called, it's a translation of of the word the poor or the meek. Uh, The Ebionites, they developed out of Jewish Christianity probably as an offshoot of the Jerusalem church uh, shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem Jerusalem in 70 AD and when you hear talk about the Judaizers you know the people trying to mix law and grace all Ebionites were Judaizers not all Judaizers were Ebionites okay but all Ebionites were in that umbrella of Judaizers open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 Hebrews chapter 10 how Ebenites came about was you had these remnants of what was known as the Essene community. The Essene community where they're aesthetic, like live on the hills. They're kind of like monks. They didn't want anything to do with a whole lot of other people. After the fall of Jerusalem and the surrounding area, uh, you had all these people in disarray. And so the Essenes started hearing about the message of Jesus. They mixed with some of these Judaizers, and they kind of became the Essenes. Again, they, they, they was named after the poor or the meek, the name that they kind of gave themselves. I had a friend. He used to have the shirt, and he wore it. And it said, uh, I am meek and lowly. And I said, really? If you are, would you wear that shirt? No? Okay. Whatever. Anyway, Ebenites is, an, is a natural fit for that. And so well, the Ebenites had this very, very strong Jewishness. It stands out because they were extreme followers of the law all the ceremonial injections of the law were meant to be adhered to. And so when they saw Jesus, they saw Jesus as a new teacher who came about to teach the true way of the Mosaic law. He was bringing it back and upholding it. He was in no way in ending the ceremonial features. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now what that means is Jesus was the final sacrifice. The ceremonial law is done. It is over. He was the final sacrifice for sins. The Ebionites said, no, we don't believe that. that that's not really how it was. And so they, so they wanted to keep the system, and they wanted to follow all the Jewish laws. They kept the Sabbath. But then they also kept worshiping on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, on Sunday. Like the two, first guys were like a two-day weekend. Go Ebionites, you know. They held the circumcision. They would faced Jerusalem when they prayed. They had daily ritual baths as well as holding on to Christian baptism as well. I like to say about the Ebionites, they never met a law they didn't like. They just love the law. And so what they did is they started to take, you know, certain pieces of the Gospels that went out. Take the Gospel of Matthew. And they would start to chop up the Gospel of Matthew. Especially getting rid of, like, anything that was like the virgin birth. Oh, no, you can't have that because Jesus is just a man. And you got to also understand that Ebenites, they they begin when the church is very early. You know, the official New Testament hasn't been put together yet. And so you have all these books. And so uh, when a gospel account was written, it was sent to all the churches. It was copied and sent out. And then when Paul wrote a letter and went to a church, that church would copy and they'd send out. So there's lots of letters of the apostles and the gospels out everywhere. But the Ebionites were rejecting most of it because they only wanted to believe that Jesus came to reestablish the law. They didn't like Paul at all. They saw they saw Paul as like the enemy of true Christianity because he taught that the ceremonial law was no longer valid, that Jesus was the true incarnation of God in human flesh, that he wasn't just a prophet in the line of Moses. Paul saw in the death and resurrection of Jesus the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. His death was the ultimate Passover, freeing his followers from sin and death, just like the original Passover to free the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. And the Ebionites, they did not like that. They would not accept the fact that Jesus himself was a sacrifice. And so when you read in Galatians 2 and Galatians 6 and Acts 15, it keeps talking about these Judaizers that the Ebionites were a part of. And what they always tried to do is sway the church away from the grace of Jesus. Now, when the church goes in and they officially deal with this ebionism, the central issue they dealt with was not any of their crazy little strange doctrines on the side. And they had a lot of those. They believed that God created everything, but into the world He inserted a good masculine force and an evil feminine force. I don't know why the girls always get the shorter than the stick, but apparently you're evil. And so when, when, when the church goes, when the church goes in, And they specifically deal with Ebionite. It's Ebionite Christology. It's their view of Jesus. Because for the Ebionites, Jesus is just the most recent, and even the most powerful, of a long line of instruments for the good. He stands in the line of Abel and Moses and the prophets and others, but he was a human being that was used for the force of the good. Uh, He was was born as others are born. There's no virgin birth. He is not the true incarnation of God in our midst. He's just a vehicle used by God. And what that does is it changes Jesus from being a redeemer to merely being a good teacher. And that's all it makes Jesus. Because for for them, you know, Jesus restored the Mosaic law that had been corrupted because they loved the law. And what's really interesting is that even way before 100 A.D., you know, the main thing the church was concerned with more than anything else was who Jesus himself claimed to be and who the apostles and disciples said he was. And that is God in the flesh coming to seek and redeem a lost people. And evenism is just a sporadic attempt throughout the history of the church and throughout human history to take Jesus and make him merely a human being. And there's been lots of varieties of this idea. In the Renaissance, in the 16th century, this Unitarianism kind of came about and said, oh, no, no, he was just a good teacher, a good man. It resurges in liberal theology in the 19th century. Uh, even today we have things called religious societies. And it's like, oh, Buddha's a good teacher and Muhammad's a good teacher and, and Jesus is a good teacher. He's the best of them all, but you know, he's, he's just a good teacher. And then they they say things like, you know, his death shows the depth of his belief and he's an example for us, but you know, it's not an atoning action of any sort. And Jesus just becomes a teacher of the moral law, but in no sense a redeemer. You know, for the early church... It was clear that Jesus was God. It was clear that Jesus said that. It's clear that the apostles and disciples taught that, and to deny it meant that you were denying what redemption was, what the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection all implied. That's why last week we talked about the true roads. There's one road, and that's grace. Everything else is the same road of law, trying to do it yourself. Jesus' road is the road of grace. Now back to where we started. So people can display all these signs of Christianity because the Ebionites probably would have said Lord to Jesus in, in one sense. They were emotionally involved. They had lots and lots of practices that they would do. That they would do. So what is the real issue of salvation then? It's lordship and grace. That's what the issues are. In Matthew 7, 22 and 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. I mean, Jesus says it's possible for people to have this intellectually stimulating faith, to have an emotionally gratifying faith, to have a socially redemptive faith. We want that for everybody who claims to follow Jesus. But it's possible to have all of that and not actually want Jesus. There's a lot of groups out there today who want all that, but they don't actually want Jesus. Because if you have Jesus in your life, what happens is your will is surrendered to his. Because on the road of grace, there's no room for anything but you and him. And that's it. Not your ego, not your pride, nothing. Just you and him. He'll put it this way. I've had people, they come to Element sometimes, and after a while they say, Man, I want that power and connection that you guys are always talking about in Christianity. I, I want this love, and I want the sense of meaning, I want all these things. But I wonder if it'll really pay off if I try Jesus. I was like, Try Jesus, okay, you know. He's like, Jam, you try it. I don't know. Anyway. Um, and what they're really saying is, I, I would like all these things in my life but I really don't want to be in a position where I don't get to decide for myself whether I want to lie or not, whether I want to cheat or not, whether I want to forgive or not, whether I want to sleep with that person or not. I don't want to be in a position where I don't get to decide for myself. So the people in Jesus' teaching, they they have orthodox doctrine in a sense. They're emotionally involved, they're deeply involved in service, but they've never surrendered their will. They've never said your will and not mine. I want to follow you. See, to live in the hope of the gospel, you've got to abandon your self-will because that, you can't have those two things at the same time, your own self-will and true hope. The message of the Christian gospel is that we live in the hope and the grace of Jesus Christ. The Ebionites were all about their own work. See, when you really follow Jesus, you surrender your will. That's what an authentic Christian does. It doesn't mean that someone who follows Jesus is necessarily more moral or more self-controlled or greater character than someone who doesn't follow Jesus. I mean, nice if you were. I mean, we should be better, but, you know, it doesn't mean. But a Christian ends up being teachable. Like, if you go to someone who really follows Jesus and, and you have to criticize them for something or talk about something that they did that, that was wrong, Christians should be the quickest in the world to admit when they're wrong. We really should. The quickest to repent, the ones who aren't galled by it and so angered by it, because we know that we are messed up and that Jesus is the one who is good. People who don't really follow Jesus but say that they do, when you criticize them, they go down your throat. They just go right at you. Or they get really depressed and, oh, whoa, it's me. Everything's, it's all about me. Everything's also horrible about me. See, when you surrender all of yourself and your will to Jesus, it's no longer about you. And no matter what happens in that, your life is still found in him because you surrender yourself to him. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. Real interesting story about this. In 1 Samuel 15, uh, God tells King Saul in this battle, you know, Saul wins this battle against the Amalekites. And God says, I want you to get rid of all of their livestock. It's tainted. Just, Just get rid of it. Didn't make a whole lot of sense to Saul. You know, a lot of obedience sometimes doesn't seem practical. And so Saul says, why would I kill all this wonderful livestock? I mean, why would I do that? You know, so, so he kept it. The prophet Samuel goes to him and says, Saul, the Lord told you to destroy that livestock of the Amalekites to get rid of it. Why didn't you do it? And Saul's got a great excuse. I mean, Saul's like, well, I thought we could offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. Sounds real good, right? First Samuel fifteen twenty two. Samuel looks at Saul, and this is what he says. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Sounds like works, but it's not. Because what the prophet is saying, Saul, you're a big dummy dude. You know, God didn't want the sheep. He wanted you. And by keeping the sheep, you kept yourself. See, Saul's like, Lord, Lord, haven't I won battles in your name and had, kept all these sheep in your name? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, we're into the kingdom of God, but the one who does the will is surrendered. That's part of the signs that our wills are surrendered to who he is. You know, the other sign of authentic Christianity is the understanding and the grasp of the grace of God. At the end of Matthew chapter 7, we're going to get there, I promise, we'll finish the Sermon on the Mount. I promise it's coming, okay, by the end of December. Jesus starts talking about this metaphor of these two houses that get built. And on the outside, they kind of look the same. And in the parable, in context, these houses are made of orthodox doctrine and service and teaching and ministry and, and all this. So you've got these guys building these two houses. You know, but what the difference between the houses is, is what the houses are based on. What's the foundation? One is a rock, which is Jesus, and the other house is its own foundation. And so it's sand, and it washes away. What this means is a Christian is somebody who can say, Father, my repentance is half-hearted. Even when I think it's great and deep, it's only half-hearted. My affection for you is many times cold. My obedience is never more than halfway there at most, and I fail again and again and again. But yet your son died for me. Your son died for me. He died my death. He lived the life I should have lived. He paid my penalty. Welcome welcomed me for his sake. That's what it means to build your house on the rock. It means that we are Christians and followers of Jesus by grace alone. And this is something that Ebionites and a lot of people today refuse to live in. The Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 3, 7-11. through 11, He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's garbage. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. He says that I might count all things as lost until I realize I am strictly saved by the grace of God alone. Only then is my house built on the rock. That's lordship and that's grace. There's people on that day who say, Lord, Lord. That's one type of tree. They expect to get something from God because of all the work they've done. Look how much I've done. Look at, look at, look at, look at, look at. Jesus, is like, it's not about you. It's about my grace and what I've done for you. Timothy Keller says this When you grasp the grace of God and surrender your will, he becomes real to you. An authentic Christian is somebody who says, I'm saved by grace alone. I surrender my will to you. And as we start talking about heretics, we're going to talk about some of the doctrines that the church had and they came up with. And and the thing is, you've got to understand about these doctrines, they're not just doctrines. These doctrines are love letters. They're truths by which God heals us and changes us and grows us and thrills us and disturbs us and challenges us. And the Holy Spirit takes us in. And we have a relationship with him. We have a relationship with Jesus. We know Jesus, not just know about Jesus. And this is the difference between those who follow Jesus and the heretics. We're going to look at is this idea of the understanding of grace and truth, who He is and what He has done. Hopefully, by the end of this, you'll be able to dispel some of the myths that are out there today. That you know Christianity just tried to make Jesus a god and never claimed to be one. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about all of these things that you'll hear like from Bill Maher and stuff like that, and, and hopefully set you on a path where you can understand the goodness and the grace of who God is, the grace that he has provided to us, and that your salvation is not based upon law. It is based upon the grace of Jesus Christ. And that is the thing the early church always came down to. It is the grace of Jesus Christ, period. And that's it. And that's, and that's the whole thing where the heretics and the church split ways, who Jesus was and the grace of who he was. This is one of the reasons why I come to communion every week. Communion is the place that reminds us of grace. You break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for you. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So we can actually be redeemed and whole and our sins are washed away because our God has been so good to us. That's communion. You surrender all of your works at the foot of the cross and you have simply in the grace that Jesus provides. The band is going to come up. And as they do, we invite you because like I said, to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you would like prayer, I mean, maybe you're in a spot where you think, you know, it's all about you. And you've got to do all these works. And you've got to make God love you. You've got to make God like you. Maybe you're like an, an Ebionite without the name. Maybe you wear t-shirts around that say, I am Meek and Lily. I don't know. You know? But the, other, the idea of understanding the grace of Jesus is that it's not about you and your work. It's about a work that he has done. I mean, you are saved by his work that was done for you. And so we live in the grace of that. That doesn't mean that, that after we know when our wills are surrendered to him, we don't understand you know, better theology. That it doesn't mean that, that, that we don't live in acts of service. We do. We do those things. But it's because we have first been surrendered to his will, because he has first called us to all these things, because he has first blessed us, so we bless others. He has first loved us, so we love there's offering boxes on the side in the back, and we give because God gives so much to us, giving simply part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done. And there's some food and stuff in the back, some cookies. I saw them. I didn't steal any, I promise. And you can grab some to eat, meet some other people. Uh, hopefully, maybe take some of the sermon notes and go a little bit deeper and ask some of those questions. You know, the difference between law and grace and, and what kind of things in your life you feel like are laws that you have to follow and what areas in your life you can actually live by the true grace of who Jesus Christ is. Uh, Because God intends for us to live as a free people in the grace of who he is and the salvation of what he brings. So live in the relationship that you have with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us as a people and help us to understand the depth and intensity of true grace. That we would honor you by how our lives have been surrendered to you. That we're not saved because of the things that we do. We're saved because of what you have done. But out of that. And understanding your goodness. And your blessing. And your hope. That we would in turn live lives. That reflect better who you are. That we would honor you. Because our hearts have been bowed down to you. In a way that everything comes under your lordship. Everything comes under your will. But it's first because we've understood that you have first loved us and you have first offered us grace and you have first blessed us. And all that we know and all that we live comes out of our understanding of you first giving to us. It's a response To live in the hope that you have provided. So teach us not to get caught up in ourselves, but to get caught up in you. And being caught up in you to serve and love and honor those around us. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.